You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. New treatments in cosmetic dermatology. Are the wrinkle lines being blurred? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Jody Gans, dermatologist at Olansky Dermatology in Atlanta. Dr. Gans is a member of the American Academy of Dermatology and the Women's Dermatologic Society. Welcome, Dr. Gans. Thanks. I'm glad to be with you. I'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on in that burgeoning, exploding, proliferating field of cosmetic dermatology. There is certainly a lot going on. I think most people in today's day and age have heard a lot on television and from their friends about Botox and fillers and different laser treatments. So people come in and they know what they want and they want to really pursue a lot of these. It's not as scary to them. It's not as taboo to them. I think it's become a lot more commonplace. Probably the most common thing I do in my practice is Botox or botulinum toxin, and that's used to treat some of the dynamic wrinkles of the face. What's different is that we're using it in different locations nowadays. The FDA approval for the use of botulinum toxin is to the muscles of the glabella or the wrinkles right between the two eyebrows. And that's what we've been doing for a number of years now. And people have expanded that to realize, well, we can use this to treat wrinkles around the eyes, on the upper forehead, and even on the lower face and neck. So a lot of people are going off-label and using botulinum toxin in other treatment areas nowadays. So you're comfortable using it outside of the glabella? We certainly are. I mean, we have done a number of studies out there. The two biggest researchers are probably the Carruthers up in Canada, and they've used Botox in a number of places beyond the glabella. Certainly, you need to know the risks, and the big risk with botulinum toxin is to make sure you don't have decreased muscle movement in areas you don't want it, i.e., Grouping. But when you talk to the patient and understand where the muscle groups are, you can usually work with them and figure out where those muscle groups are active to treat properly. Do you have an opinion about everybody and their brother doing Botox in terms of ENTs, general practitioners, ob Do they know what they're doing? I think it's important to know the muscle, the facial anatomy, and then to know the risks of the medication. So I do have a problem when people don't know that. If they don't know exactly where they're placing this medication and what the risks involved are, that scares me, and I'm scared for my patients. But if they've done the training and they know how to use it, I think it can be done properly and safely. You know, the same thing goes with the use of filler medications, things like collagen, Restylane, Juvederm. These are all fillers that we're using to fill in wrinkles of static lines, not the wrinkles of motion, but the wrinkles that are there at rest. Dermatologists and plastic surgeons are the ones who probably do it the most, but we're certainly seeing doctors in other areas do this as well. I don't want to say they shouldn't do it, but I hope everyone is well-trained and well-versed before they just start picking up the syringe and doing it. What's your favorite filler? Totally depends on the area and what I'm using it for. You know, I think that Certain fillers are used best for deeper lines. Certain fillers are better for superficial ones. A lot of people will come into my office and just say, you know, they want the newest. They want the best. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think collagen, which has been used for years, is still a very good filler in the right situation. So what I think is really neat about today's day and age with fillers is that we have options. We have options for deep lines. We have options for superficial lines. And we'll often layer them. 
oftentimes we'll use one in one area, one in the other, and, and overlap them. So I think the olden days of what can we do and what's the one thing out there has really been replaced by what modalities can we combine to get the best effect for our patient. One of the things I do a lot of is combining Botox and fillers. They really serve two different purposes, and I think a lot of our patients don't realize that. Um, like I said, Botox works best for those lines that are really dynamic, those lines that come and go with motion. We kind of try to train the muscles to not do those motions over time and thus not to make that wrinkling motion on the skin, whereas fillers are the exact opposite. Fillers are really used to fill in lines that are already there at rest. So I oftentimes have to explain this to my patients and really get them to understand why we would use one or the other or even combine them. Do you have patients that get addicted to Botox and filler? Addiction. That's an interesting thing. A lot of patients, when they're very new, will ask me that. You know, they'll say, well, once I start doing this, don't I have to do this forever? I always leave it up to my patients. You know, we know the longevity of these products. Botox will usually last around three months. Fillers, depending on what kind you're using, last, you know, a number of months as well. So I can realistically predict for them about how long that product is going to last. Whether or not the patient wants to come back and keep up with it all the time is up to them. So are there patients who are, so to speak, addicted? Only in the sense that they want to maintain that effect, that they really love the way that looks and, and want to keep it up. But I can't say that there's a true um, addiction to Botox on any other level. Has the cost of Botox come down substantially because everyone's using it? Not really. It's interesting. Not really. Right now, the price hasn't varied too much that I can tell. You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm with Dr. Jody Gans of Olansky Dermatology in Atlanta. Dr. Gans, why is it that Clint Eastwood's face, which is riddled with lines and wrinkles, is considered attractive and he would never mess with that, yet the rest of our society is having a problem aging with wrinkles. Well, I think that's a real interesting question. I think certainly there has been a different standard for men than women through the years, although interestingly I see a lot more males in my practice for Botox and fillers than I used to. That may or may not be changing. I also think it has to do with what the goal of that, that patient is. I always talk to patients beforehand about how much expression, how much of a change they're hoping to get or not. I really caution people from doing too much Botox if they're an actor or actress or they're on television and need to be showing that emotion. That might define who they are. So one of the things I really try to do is, is get that expectation from the patient and really get a sense of what they're trying to achieve with this treatment option. You got to be careful. You don't want to give someone a frozen look. I think that's very unnatural. And I think a couple of years ago, people were really going for that overdone frozen look. And we've kind of shifted the other way. I tell my patients that I want them to look rested. I want them to look like they've had a great new outfit or a great new haircut, but I don't want people to actually look at them and say, oh, you've obviously had Botox. When you have a patient coming in repeatedly, month after month after month for a new procedure, 
Do you ever start worrying that they may have some underlying psychological problems? I do. We do see patients who come in all the time, who are always looking for the next latest, greatest thing, and who are oftentimes not satisfied. And this goes back to, again, their, their expectations. Um, occasionally, a little red flag will go off, and you start to wonder, is this person grappling with other bigger issues beyond just the superficial on the skin? There is something in the psychiatry world called body dysmorphic disorder where patients have an unrealistic expectation or unrealistic perception of imperfections in themselves, and this can impact their whole life. So I'm by no means a psychiatrist, but we're taught to kind of pay attention to these clues. When you have someone who repeatedly comes in, who is never happy with their results, and whose day-to-day life is being impacted by this fault in their appearance, it makes you wonder. It's hard to bring this up to the patient, but I'll tell you as the clinician, I don't want to be the one who is treating them over and over again and not making them happy and also putting them at risk for side effects. So I do bring this up to my patients, you know, try to very gently ask them if they've thought about this, if they've ever talked with anyone about this. And I think psychiatrists do a great job at really working with these body dysmorphic patients. So how often does one of these patients come into your office? I would say rarely. That's just an overview. I wouldn't say these patients come in all the time, but when they do, it definitely sparks something for you. It makes you really think about, wait a minute, am I doing this patient a service? And I think as doctors, as providers, that's what we ultimately want to do. I want to make my patient happy with what we've just achieved. And if I can't fulfill that for them, there's something else we need to be considering. Right. We all want to follow the advice of first do no harm. Absolutely. So is there a behavior that you can actually sense or smell when you walk in the room that, wow, this patient may actually have something more serious going on? Certainly, I think the medical history is what's going to guide you through that getting an idea of how many other people they've seen, what other procedures they've had, and if they're continuing to pursue something that's just unrealistic. So is there a real, actual way to diagnose body dysmorphic syndrome? There is, and I'm not the person to do it. I really work with my psychology and psychiatry colleagues in it. But I think as dermatologists, we should at least be clued in to when these people are having this imperfection interfere with their day-to-day activities. It would seem to me that there are different levels of body dysmorphic syndrome, that some people have a very mild version of it, and you may not be able to pick that up, and they might be the the bread and butter of every cosmetology practice in the country. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you have to really get a sense of what's going on with this patient. Is it something minor, like, oh, they're just changing makeup every month, or are they really going to the extreme to pursue this? And I think we probably all see these patients to a level, and then, you know, the ones that are really extreme need more help. Why are we so unhappy? Do you think it's our culture, or is this something that's happening all over the world? Oh, I think it's happening in other places, not just the U.S. I mean, cosmetic dermatology is very big in Europe and very big in South America, So to say that it's only here, I doubt it, but we also don't see these same issues come up in tribal cultures. So certainly the more advanced society gets, the more we focus on these other things. Do you see a way out? 
for our culture, or is it going to get worse and worse? I don't think it's getting worse and worse. I think it's just changing. You know, I think every generation had its issues and its ideals, and I think we're just seeing a different manifestation here now today. I would like to thank Dr. Jody Gans for joining us today to discuss new treatments in cosmetic dermatology. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Thanks for listening.